So this past Wednesday, November 1st, right? November 1st, day after Halloween. And I am in my local CVS. And I see one of the people who works there lift up the Frankenstein head that was sitting right next to the checkout lane and put that away and put in, I kid you not, a Santa hat. (laughs) November the freaking first. (laughs) Can't we ever just be where we are? Um, I mean, I was born a, a New York Jew. And if you know anything about New York Jews, this is a stereotype, one that I found to be true more than not. We love Christmas. I love Christmas, but I have to tell you, every year I, I make, uh, I make a, a Spotify Christmas playlist, but I embargo it until after dinner on Thanksgiving. Sometimes maybe when I'm making dinner on Thanksgiving, because, again, can we just be where we are? November 1st, I kid you not. And it made me think of this. It made me think of this picture. One of my favorite movies about a boy. An underdeveloped man, a lonely boy. Hugh Grant plays that underdeveloped, immature man who, one of the reasons, or really the primary reason that he's so underdeveloped is that his dad wrote a very famous Christmas song. It's called Santa's Super Sleigh, and they sing it all the time, much to his chagrin throughout the movie. And it's made so much money that he has never had to really seriously work a day in his entire life. He lives off the residuals, the royalties. And as a result, he lives on an island. And I got to tell him, the CVS, and I got to tell you, the CVS had his annoyance beat in the movie by three weeks. In that beautiful British thing that they do where they say a curse word, but to American ears, we're not really sure it's a curse word, so we just say it. November the sodding 19th, he says, is the first time. It gets earlier and earlier. Every year where he hears Santa's super sleigh. Now, it's not just because of the CVS and the too quick turnaround from Halloween to Christmas that I really recalled this movie. It's that this movie has a very central place in my life. It was the last movie that my ex-former, very brief, training wheels, marriage, wife, and I saw together before our marriage broke up in 2002. But that's not even quite why I remember it. Because it was about eight months later when I was in Boston for a conference. And I spent the weekend with a friend of mine. I was licking my wounds from the end of my first marriage and I wasn't really missing the marriage, but I felt as if I had missed an entire part of myself in the failure of this marriage. And that somehow I wasn't quite through or doing the right things in this process of growing up. The friend who I was staying with, six weeks before he had got engaged to the woman he was in love with on the banks of the River Seine in Paris, and five weeks after that, he moved out. It brought up all kinds of things. So here we were, two guys in their early 30s, thinking we had failed the gauntlet of midlife. It wasn't my actual midlife crisis. That would come later. Uh, But it was my first taste of what we can call a a midlife correction. (laughs) And one of the things I noticed is that the thing that I needed the most, unfortunately, was still there for me to find. And it's something that falls away for many men, those of us who identify as men, when we move into midlife, which is that 
I had put away my deep friendships as if they were something childish. Unfortunately, they were still there for me to reach back to when I needed them when my own life was falling apart. My friend and I, we were wanting to grow up, but not quite sure how. And that brings me to today's message in Peter Pan. This new series that we're doing here called Behind the Magic. And yes, if you're a VH1 fan, it is very much an allusion to Behind the Music. Uh, because the goal of this series, well, one, it's a little bit like this. If you were a, f- a fan of Rocky and Bullwinkle growing up like me, if you want to put that slide up there. Remember Fractured Fairy Tales? <laughs> now, these are these really kind of um, amusing uh, and silly visual puns and verbal puns about all these classic fairy tales that they would show about. I want to say about the 12-minute mark, it seemed like Rocky and Bullwinkle. I watched a lot of Rocky and Bullwinkle growing up. And they would take these classic stories and they would twist them to the point that they were almost unrecognizable. So that's a little bit of what this message series is about. But it's not just the fractures that we want to pay attention to in the next six weeks together. It's really about this process. That many of us grew up with stories that we recognize are no longer true for us. Many of them the forms of fairy tales. And when we wake up from that illusionment, there's a disillusionment. As a well-known 60s pastor said who worked a lot with young people at a time of great disillusionment and awakening from some of the lies that they had been told, they would come into his office and they would speak of their disillusionment and he would take a long drag off his pipe and say, well, that's only because you had illusions in the first place. (laughs) But that's not what we're here for. It's just to allow you to kind of stew in your own stuff. This process in this message series, is about recognizing that we all have these illusions and that they're told to us very often through the forms of fairy tales and that we all get disillusioned and that if we keep going with it, keep engaging, we may find a deeper re-enchantment. Not just the fracture in our fairy tales, but also an awareness, as a great teacher taught us, that if we pay attention to our fractures, it is where the light finds us. So here's the thing. Peter Pan is one of those stories as someone who had his own struggles growing up as a boy, as a young man. Uh, Peter Pan was one of those stories that kind of stayed with me, and I wasn't quite sure why. I mean, my parents took me to see the Broadway revival, Sandy Duncan. It's the, if you've ever seen a live production of Peter Pan, you always know that a very petite woman plays Peter Pan. That tells you something about perhaps what they're going for in gendered terms here. And I misremembered what Peter Pan was about. I thought it was about a boy that couldn't grow up. That's not what it's about. It's about who a boy who wouldn't grow up. And if you go back and you take a look at the original story of Peter Pan, what I found, and maybe this is what it reminded me of myself, is that uh, Peter Pan was actually something of a jerk. (laughs) Peter Pan was not a character that we aspire to be. He considers himself to be kind of the center of it all. Like in this uh, little thing that happens, uh, Wendy, this kind of human companion friend, reattaches his shadow. We could do a whole message on that right there. (laughs) Reattaches his shadow, and what does Peter Pan do? He doesn't thank her for it. He takes credit for it, as if he is the one who has reattached his shadow. Now, Peter Pan is a fairly innocuous and at times very lighthearted and sweet-natured riff on something that maybe we just call boys will be boys. But we know, especially recently, this is much more serious than Peter Pan. We know that 
You know, we're not talking about all boys or men being underdeveloped or immature or violent. But if you've been paying attention on social media, not just to hashtag me too, but to before that, yes, all women. How ubiquitous pain and trauma come from versions of masculinity that are based upon putting others in pain. And here's the thing, what we're also hearing as part of this Me Too process is how many men have been targeted by other men because of their perceived weakness or power imbalance and sometimes how painful it is for men to speak of their own vulnerabilities and to feel that they have found themselves, to know that they have found themselves on the receiving end of someone else's violence. It starts early for many of us as men and as boys, those of us who identify in that way. I believe it was exactly 20 years ago today at the Unitarian Society of New Haven in Hamden, Connecticut, that I preached my second ever message. I think it was the fourth ever sermon I have ever preached. First Sunday in November. And I was talking about boyhood and masculinity. And I told a story. Something that had happened two weeks before. I was walking along the beach on this gorgeous fall day on the Connecticut coastline. And I stopped and I sat and I saw two young boys, brothers, jumping off this concrete seal taking turns. And I stopped and I watched because their frivolity, their sense of naturalness, their sense of play was just so wonderful. But I guess to one brother at least, I must have been paying too much attention to his brother. And so he screamed out with real anger, don't look at that little faggot, look at me. Now, I don't know if the brother who had been called a faggot, and I pardon, pardon me for sharing that language, that is not a word I use lightly. The brother who had been called that, I'm not sure he ever even knew what it meant at that point. But he knew this was something he did not want to be called. And so he got up, he got up from the sand, and he pushed his older brother down. And they started fighting. It starts early for many men and boys. This recognition that it feels intolerable to have someone disregard you. Or frustrate you. All dehumanizing, demeaning, dominating systems begin, especially for men and boys, in this inability to recognize that life can be difficult for all of us. And so as a response to this difficulty, we add more pain to this difficulty. This is so often how masculinity is constructed. That I make myself feel better by inflicting power over you. If many of us are honest, as boys, those of us who experience ourselves as male, we will tell our stories about ways that we have been complicit and also victimized by this way that we were taught to be men. That's why I love what David Foster Wallace said some years ago. He said, we can find ourselves, listen to the language in the beginning of this, it's really intentional, to be lords at the center of all creation. But then listen to the second part. All alone 
in our tiny skull-sized kingdoms. All alone. It's a movie we showed here before at Wellsprings. It had one of our strongest responses ever. The Mask You Live In. About masculinity. About recognizing how many boys and young men yearn for deeper relationships. And yet how often that is frustrated for us and so it curdles and turns poisonous. And other people suffer and we do. And so one stage of growth for those of us who identify as men is just moving out of that place of being lords of our tiny skull-sized kingdoms. Recognizing that the opportunity to be in real relationship with each other requires not devaluing ourselves but decentering ourselves. And recognizing that the reality of other people is just as real as our own and that, in fact, when we relate to other people and their reality as real, it actually makes ourselves more real, more vital, more alive, more loving. But I actually think there's something deeper. And this is something I have learned especially in the last decade plus of my life since I have gotten sober. That it's actually not about just decentering myself that the most profound transformative spiritual growth that I have witnessed in myself and in men whose lives I deeply esteem is this. It is about allowing ourselves to be seen and to be cared for and to care for others when we feel like we are least worth it. When we are at our most vulnerable. From this place, I have found of seeming weakness actually comes the greatest strength any human being can know. I don't think these are male or female categories at all. I just think for those of us who identify as men, this can be more of a challenge. I think this quote-unquote weakness, this vulnerability, is in fact our greatest strength. I think great teachers show us this over and over again, especially in my life they have, and especially for those of us who are men when we want to cover up that vulnerability. And so I want to tell you a story today that I'm going to try and get through without crying. But if I do, that's all right. I want to cry because I'd like to continue preaching, but we'll see if I can do both. It's uh, about a woman named Aislinn B. You'll see from that picture, she is a ham. She's a cut-up. She's actually a really well-known comedian uh, from Ireland, very famous in the UK as well. And Aislinn's father died when she was just three years old. And he died by his own hand. He died of suicide. There's a picture of the two of them taken just before he perished. For that first decade after her father's death, Aislinn had this story about him. She didn't know that he died of suicide, and she thought of him in the most glowing, charismatic, charming way, because that's who he was as well. And when she turned 13, her mom, Aislinn's mom, told her and her younger sister the fact of how her father died, and she turned away from her father's memory. So angry, so furious, so heartbroken she was that she didn't want anything to do with his memory any longer. There was, in fact, a note that he left, and she said she would read it over and over and over again 
recognizing that was true the 20th time, the 50th time, was just as true as it was the first time. There was no mention of her. And she so wanted there to be. She wondered if her father, in fact, ever loved her. And she she fantasized, these are her words, she fantasized that someday a letter would arrive, like back to the future, (laughs) with these words. Aislinn, I wanted to wait until you were old enough to understand. I was secretly a spy. That is why I did it. I love you. I love your sister too. P.S. Heaven is real. Your philosophy essay is wrong. And I'm still totally watching over you, so please stop shoplifting. (laughs) But that letter never came. And she kept it bottled up. Until three years ago, when Robin Williams killed himself. She considered Robin Williams to be her TV dad. And also someone as a comedian who she aspired to be like. And she began to open that crack in her heart just a little bit more. And she started to talk about her dad. And she started to see how many other boys and men she knew that she had grown up with had taken their own lives. And I think also because she found herself at his age, she said, feeling like a giant child. (laughs) For the first time, feeling compassion and forgiveness for the decision her dad had made, which is that maybe it was the best decision he could have made in the amount of pain that he was in. And maybe he wasn't a totally, completely adult person making an adult decision. And then sometimes, because this is the way the world works, sometimes, 30 years after his death, when the company at work at which he had worked as a vetter, uh, as a vet for horses, was cleaning up their office. And they couldn't decide if they wanted to throw out this particular box, so they delivered it back to Aislin, their mother and a younger sister. And it was a box filled with photos that she had never seen. Photos from his desk. And almost all of them had her in it. And she wondered, maybe I was the last face that my father had ever seen before he took his own life. And these are her words. My father's death has given me a lot. It has given me a lifelong love of women and people like my mom, other grittiness and hardness, traits that we are not supposed to value as feminine or not taught to. And it has also given me a love of men, of their vulnerability and tenderness, traits that we do not often foster as masculine or allow ourselves to associate with masculinity. And I want to read you her words. And so this is the note that she sent to him. Maybe making up for the fact that she did not get a note from her, from her dad. To daddy, here is my note to you. I'm sad you killed yourself. Because I really think that if you could see the life you left behind, you would regret it. You didn't get to see the Berlin Wall fall or Ireland qualify for Italia 90. That's a football or soccer reference, whatever they call it. You didn't get to see all the encyclopedias that you bought for us to one day use at university get squashed into a CD and subsequently the internet. (laughs) 
you have never got to hear your younger daughter's voice. It annoys me sometimes, but it has also said some of the most amazing things when drunk. (laughs) I think you would have been proud to watch your daughter do stand-up at the O2. That's a big festival. And sad to see my mother watching it on her own. Then again, if you hadn't died, I probably wouldn't have been mad enough to become a clown for a living. I am your daughter, and I am really fucking funny. Just like you. But unlike you, I'm going to stop being a clown for five minutes and write our story in the hope that it may help someone who didn't get to have a box turn up or who may not feel in their right mind right now and needs a reminder to find hope. Thank you, Aislinn. One of my favorite (coughs) teachers is Richard Rohr, Catholic contemplative, deeply progressive teacher. One of my favorite books of his, Reverend Lee referred to it, I think, a month ago. It's called Falling Upward. It's about how we can recognize, especially at midlife, and especially if we're men, who are never taught how to fail productively. (laughs) Who are told that if we fail, we are failures. In Falling Upward, Richard Rohr gives us a better story. That when we reach the second half of life, if our hearts are open at all, we will recognize that we have suffered losses and failures, and that by embracing this truth, we will actually find something much better than Peter Pan offers we will find that the only sustainable flight in this life comes after life has forced us back down to earth. That this is not just growing up, but that this is maturing. So what does it mean to grow a heart and to grow a soul? And so I want to close with one of my favorite models of mature masculinity. Other way. Next one. Thank you. Bruce, the boss. Now, this picture was taken after their reunion tour in 2000. If you know anything about Bruce Springsteen, you know for for the prior 15 years, he left the band that had made it famous. He left the E Street band behind because he had to go off on his own and he'd do some of his own stuff. And in that time, he got in touch with the fact that he had been living with depression for many years and that he had grown up in a household in which his father's own undiagnosed mental health disorder had caused tremendous suffering, and Bruce had a failed marriage. You would say it was that point in his life that he got into the second half of life, and he learned how to fall upward. On this reunion tour, they would end their shows with a song that Bruce wrote called, If I Fall Behind, Wait for Me. That actually, at first glance, is about marriage a covenantal promise that many of us have made. But what they would do with this live song is they would make it more than just about marriage. And in one of my top ten most favorite moments of live music, and I have a lot (laughs) of favorite moments, they would sing this song, all of them, each of the vocalists taking their turns, 
If I should fall behind, wait for me. Making a promise to each other. Recognizing that to grow in this life and open our hearts means that we will fall. And in this final moment, this is really where the top ten favorite part comes in. All their voices join in harmony as one. If I should fall behind, wait for me. Brings to mind another of my favorite Bruce lines. Someday these childish dreams must end to become a man and grow up to dream again. It's not the dream of never growing up. It's the dream of growing up, of opening our hearts. It's not a gendered dream at all. It's just a struggle for many of us who are men. It is the dream of true belonging and true love and no longer having to wear a false face, a mask that hides us from ourselves and hides us from each other. So today, may we leave whatever version of Never Never Land we think we would like to escape to and come back here to home to earth, whatever our gender expression. And may you know, may we know, that we all belong and are loved. Amen. May you live in blessing. Would you pray with me? God, grant us the strength to remove the mask that is false. To show up and to share face and to see others' face. And recognizing that behind all of the personas, there is this heart that we share. This heartbeat uniting all of us. May we trust it today and come home to it. Amen.